Welcome to the Yield Podcast. I am Brooke Payne, your host. Together, we are going to create passive income, organically grow your side hustle, meanwhile, being completely submitted to God's leadership throughout the process, because that is how we exponentially grow. My name is Lucas Scrobot, SK Robot, and me and my family, we live in Dubai, UAE, which is in the Middle East, which uh, for those, if you're looking at the Arab Peninsula, it's right next to Saudi Arabia and Oman. Uh, UAE is a nation of about 9 million people. And uh, we've been over here for the last six years. I have a media company and... I have four boys. I just had my fourth son Congratulations, uh, born just way. three weeks ago. So uh, life, is, life is amazing right now. Four boys. We have six, six-year-old, four-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, and, and three-week-year-old boys. So you can imagine life is uh, crazy good. Yeah. When you say you have a media company, tell me a little bit about what you do. I know branding heavy quite a bit. Yeah, I like to focus on communication strategy. So I like to go in and help brands clarify how to communicate who their target audience is, what their target audience wants and needs, and then how to communicate in a way that resonates emotionally. Because when we sell, we we sell emotionally. We have to bond emotionally first, and then we justify that sale with logic, with stats, with figures. But oftentimes, uh, brands can get that mixed up and they don't do that emotional bonding first. They try to justify why their product is great, why their organization is great, and they miss out on the branding aspect of it, which is all emotional. It's all soft. So that's what I like to do when I come into a brand, focus on that, and then the, the fallout of that is communication strategy, which is marketing. Um, and when we talk about branding, I often think it's not just a it's not just a visual, you know, logo, but it's the, the culture of the company. It's looking and say, what is the culture of your company, of your employees, the day in, day out? And how do you manifest that towards external communications to those people that you're trying to reach to achieve your goals? So give us an example of a brand that you see connects emotionally really well, one that we can all kind of relate with. Oh, Coca-Cola. I mean, Coca-Cola is probably like... I mean, obviously, it's a duck. Coke, Nike, they are all brand-centric. They're not direct uh, sales-centric. Um, and they are just telling the story over and over and over again, which is, for Coke, it's happiness. And you see it all throughout their marketing. They're not saying, come down to the corner store and buy a Coke today. It's, hey, do you want to be happy? Coke makes you happy. Um, Nike, it's this aspiration to achieve great and impossible things. And you see their ads all over the place and you're like, you identify with that, right? They're telling a story. They're telling a narrative that resonates with you emotionally. It says, that is my tribe. And when, as Seth Godin says, people like us do things like this, all of a sudden you, you say, well, I'm, I'm people like us. I'm a person who wants to you know, run a four-minute mile, who wants to run a two-hour marathon, a person who is trying to achieve something great. Well, if I'm people like us, then I do things like this, which is I buy Nike. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's what emotionally triggers in me. And I buy Nike. I don't know why, right. but that's, I just yeah, do it. <laughs> I just do it. 
And that is the power of brand and that's the power of tribe. And I think that is what, that is the way that we all should be thinking and building, whether we have a solo startup, whether we're a, a personal brand, um, whether we have a, you know, whether you're Coca-Cola, that's what they're doing. They are building tribe, they're building identity, and that is the glue that holds everything together. Right. There's, of course, sales strategy that falls out of that, but that's secondary. And they both work together, really. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And that's something I'm, I'm a huge proponent on is culture. And so when you're creating, when you're working with a brand to create culture, you're you're kind of in an interesting position, right? Because you're a consultant coming into another person's brand. So it's not mm-hmm. like you're the CEO and you have control of how they treat the employees. How do you help infiltrate that and, and start to bring structure to culture? How, what does that look like from a consulting perspective? I, culture, I think, all comes, again, back down to communication. And it's how are you communicating internally? Um, and that isn't necessarily always like what memo are you sending out and are you using, you know, what font set are you using? But it's how are, like, what is your communication flow and is it healthy or is it not healthy? And so I always point people back to story and the power of story. And I try to, I try to unfold in a brand, in a company, what is their story? What is their narrative? from those CEOs at the top who are controlling everything. And then once they figure that out and they see, oh, this is who we are, then the next question is, well, do, you, do you, all your employees, are they buying in with your tribe? Because if, if your employees aren't buying in with your tribe, with your brand, with who you are, how are you going to get, you know, Joe and Becky and Mary Sue, <laughs> how are you going to get them to buy in if they don't know your story? But we all buy in via story, right? It is the shortest distance between two people is a story, not a straight line. And it's story. So then in a, in a company, in a brand, we figure out, okay, who, who are we internally? What is our internal culture? The, the why, the what, why do we exist? It's just really esoteric, very high level. What do we do? Which is very, we sell pencils, we sell markers, right? But then it's, how do we do that? And as they unfold that story, then you can help them then communicate down to their employees, to the people who are on their team, that story day in, day out, day in, day out with regular communications, daily touch points um, to help reinforce that narrative because without vision, people perish, right? Yes. And as visionary leaders of companies, we have to continue, one, put that vision in front of us, and then two, put that vision in front of our employees of why we're doing this, why we're going to work. It's not about closing the sale. It's about making our client have a, an emotional experience and encounter with our brand, not with our logo, but with our brand. Who are we? Our internal culture. And that is where a brand begins to begin to act like a human. And when they begin to act like a human, that's when we begin to bond and we begin to identify with different brands. That's what I, I, I try to do. I have so many questions coming to mind. First of which being niche or niche, whichever you want to say. What's your opinion on because we keep using this verbiage tribe and how do we find our tribe? I would argue to say Nike or Coke, they're not niching down or niching down. Um, in fact, I think everyone I know has in some point in their life 
held a Coke or wore Nike tennis shoes. So what's your opinion on that? Uh, Cause that's my own personal struggle right now. I'm trying to figure out what, what's your take on that? What's your opinion? That is a really great question. I, I think I would say two things. First, I think they actually are niching down and we just don't realize it. They are the biggest, they are the biggest, the smartest, and they are producing so many pieces of content every day across so many different channels, and they're, they're targeting those. So if you look across Nike ads, you'll see actually they're showing lots of different genders. They're showing lots of different race profiles. They're showing lots of different sports, and they're targeting that towards those niches. So they're, they're not talking in the proverbial we and us they're saying you, Hey, I'm talking to you right now. Like Red Bull does this. Red Bull is one of my favorite brands on Instagram. They are, they make me wish that I was awesome. And then I realize I'm not. And (laughs) Red Bull really won't give me wings at this moment. Yeah, exactly. But they, but they, they niche down into each one of those verticals of their broader umbrella and they communicate to those subcultures. And then they tie those subcultures back into a greater and bigger narrative. so I think that's one answer. And then I, I think another thing is that they are not necessarily niching down into demographics, but they're niching down into psychographics. So it's no longer just, okay, what's their age and do they like the New York Jets? But it is, what's their emotional status? What are they, what are they thinking? What is that wavelength, deeper psychological things that are going on and craft messages that resonate with those psychographics and a niche into those. So you'll see that a lot in their, their messaging as well. And maybe I'm just a newbie, but psychographics is a whole new, that's a whole new world for me. And I, I did listen to a different interview where you mentioned that if you could have chose a different path, you may have went into psychology or sociology. So, yeah. so, so break that down. Cause that sounds like a passion of yours. Break that yeah. down. How do you find how do you find that? I forgot that I said that. That's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when I was in university, I was, I start, actually started off as civil engineering because, you know, in high school, they're like, mark, mark down what you're, declare your major. And I'm like, I don't know, civil engineering. <laughs> great. I don't know what concrete. I don't know. I don't want to do that. So I changed to math because I've always loved math as a kid. And then I had to take a couple a couple uh, core credits in English. I took a couple English literature classes I fell in, I just fell in love. And I realized that math is a study of truth, but literature is a study of people and the study of humanity. And that even in and of itself, even fiction, sometimes fiction is more truthful than facts, right? Today, I just recorded an episode um, and I'm in, this, in the middle of a series talking about things that were impossible that all of a sudden became possible. And today I was looking for a story of someone, an explorer who turned back just like a hair too soon. They were about to get that breakthrough. That moment was coming. And then uh, I gave up and I turned back. I found this one story of Leif Erikson. And it's Leif Erikson was, you know, about a thousand AD. He discovered Greenland, a Viking. He actually comes to America. And as I'm reading this story, as I'm reading the story, it says, but he, he saw a dog barking on the shore and he saw this dog bucket is a really big dog. So they kind of tacked up and down the shoreline, but the dog just kept on following them barking. So they're like, ah, I guess we should 
probably just turn back and call it a day. So it's a satire. It's not, it's not a real, it's not truth. He actually was, he did actually land in the Americas first before Christopher Columbus. But so that story, though it's clearly a satire, it's actually more true, even though it's not factual. Because how many of us, we're going, we're pursuing, we're about to get that breakthrough, we're about to close that deal, and then we self-sabotage. Every day, we're self-sabotaging. Why? Ah, oh, not that dog. I see the <laughs> dog, it's barking. I, I don't know. There's a dog. Better not. Fear. And so, so that's why I love myth. That's why I love story. That's why I love fiction, because it reveals those deeper narratives that are going on in each and every one of our minds that um, if it was presented in a factual way, it wouldn't mean anything. But once it's told in a story, it, it bypasses your, your frontal lobe and it hits your heart. Right. And so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. I mean, I think the second part of that would be how do you tap into, I mean, maybe you're just super good at this, but I'm just now learning this exists. So I love connecting with people. So I'm often frustrated when I feel people's walls and I don't know how to, I'm pretty good at it, but there's certain types or um, personality types that I'll find, you know, there's just a wall there and it's hard to mm -hmm. tap into. So how do you, um, how do you tap into, okay, well, based on what I'm experiencing, it seems that they may be in this type of sociographic. Am I saying that correctly? Sociographic. Yeah, there's the psychographic or sociographic. Psychographic. Okay. Yeah. So how do you what's the question? How do you break past that? How do you break past that? How do you identify it? Um, if you don't necessarily like if it's not something you study or, you know, just in a general social setting. Yeah, in a general social setting, you know, that takes emotional intelligence, that takes being able to read people. There's probably a thousand reasons that someone might have a wall. And so what is, what is your goal? What is your objective in that scenario? And um, I think I would, if someone has a wall and it, I don't have like a real clear objective, it's like, okay, well, that's just them. Or if I do have an objective, I'm going to try to break down, find common ground, break down those walls and figure out how do I get in the back door to have an emotional connection with this person? Where can, where can we relate? Um, and if you're then trying to, you know, dissect that person into a marketing um, that would, I think you'd need a subgroup of people to understand, you know, psychologically, okay, how is this person thinking? What is, what is this person believing? What are the, the principles that are guiding these people's lives? And then how do we resonate with those principles and then play off those principles to our objectives? I think that's brilliant because oftentimes you see this might be a more American perspective, but we like to force our beliefs and our systems on anyone and everyone. And what you were just explaining is coming in, understanding how they think and what their objectives are and creating an emotional connection, not to use them or manipulate them into your product or your vision. But, but if your I product is good, if, if, if I have a great product that I believe in, like I believe in my podcast, I think it's great. I believe in it. If I, if I manipulate and convince someone and guilt trip someone into, whether it's buying my book, listening to my podcast, 
and it's helping their life. If I'm like, cause that's, cause the, the next step to what you just said is sales is bad, right? Mm-hmm. We have this, this conception across the globe, ah, sales is kind of slimy. We get the used car salesman thing into our mind, but we're really so many times I walk into a store and I'm mad that someone didn't actually come and sell me. They're either like just hawking over my shoulder and like, uh, I'm, I'm just looking around right now, but they don't actually like sell me on what I need or what I'm looking for or what I want. And so the role of sales is how can I identify that person's need pain points and how can I meet it with my product? How can I meet it with my service? How can I serve them? Because that will actually make them satisfied. People want to be sold to. And so I think when we come heavy handed in kind of very kind of top down without first bonding and figuring out what is our end users need, how do we fix that problem? How do we solve their problem and help them? And when we just come down and sell my products or buy my product, buy my product, buy my product, well, no one's going to buy your product for one, because you're not actually meeting their need. You're not actually going to them where they are and, and having a product market fit. Right. That's brilliant. I, I highly agree. And being the daughter of a car salesman, I saw it and he, he did cars, he did insurance. And my dad's a fantastic salesperson as far as technique goes. Um, but I think the reason he is successful is because he has the, anybody who knows Brian Blair, my, my dad knows he connects with, he could literally talk to a wall. And so yeah. I think, I think what you're talking about, it, it's a conversation that's not being had. I think a lot of millennials who aren't in sales or, or aren't in that professional arena or corporate arena where they don't, this isn't a daily conversation. I think most millennials would say, well, I don't want to be sold or I don't like being, I don't like sales, but then they're going through Instagram and they're clicking through and buying all the products that are right there yeah. that are, you know, linked to the content they're looking at. So, so yeah, I love this conversation, by the way, I'm, I'm very stoked. And yeah, it's it, like, the, I mean, those, sorry to cut you off those millennials. I mean, one, they're not thinking logically. They, they are just <laughs> repeating something that was told to them. Oh, I don't like sales. Why do they say that? Oh, Cause they feel like it's like the right thing to do. But they, like you said, they're not even aware of what they're doing, that they are inundated in a consumer culture and they are the consumers of America right now, spending left and right, incredible amount of debt. And so even though they might not like being sold to, they are looking for someone to sell them stuff day in, day out, like you said. That's absolutely right. I think millennials we're interesting. <laughs> we'll just put it that because I think we'll get into some, some of what I was just about to say, we'll get into, and I'd rather you say it cause you're more articulate anyway. Um, what were what? you going to say? No, you, you say it. I'd like to hear, like to hear. So I like I'm, the one way I like the, I want to yeah, hear what yeah, you're yeah. thinking. Absolutely. So I, from a young age realized I didn't like what I saw my parents doing. I didn't mm. like I, from as long as I can remember, they were working hard. My parents, specifically my dad worked nights and my mom worked days. Somehow I knew there's got to be a way outside of trading my time for money. And Mm -hmm. so this led me on this journey. And and now Cameron and I um, were investing in, in doing real estate investing. But my main goal is not real estate investing. It's not stock investing or, or any of these other things that we're into it's the fact that I have freedom. And I think that's where millennials kind of come together is 
we want freedom. And we saw Mm -hmm. the generation before us work so hard. And so anything that tries to diminish our freedom, we fight it or we yeah. just or we just run from it. And so I think sales totally. is one of those things because we think, uh-oh, you're going to high pressure sale corner us and we're not going to be able to get out. So rather than going in that store or going to that event, I'm just going to listen to the podcast or go online or or maybe just avoid it entirely. Um but I do think when yes, when we I think there's two things going on there, right? So there's the those people who are like, well, I just want the free product. I'm not actually going to pay and invest. That's because they're, they have a poverty mentality. They like the way that they're raised, they're not investing in themselves. And instead they are just, they're, they're a river without river banks, which is a swamp. And so a river, river banks and boundaries are set for us so that we can go on a direction, move forward and actually accomplish, accomplish something. But when we throw off those restraints, which is what a generation is doing, because we want freedom. But the, the result is when we pursue freedom, we find bondage, right? So every time that one of these millennials are just trying to live this free, carefree, you know, Instagram life, <laughs> they are actually going to get the exact opposite. And the way that we find freedom is by pursuing wisdom, pursuing principles and establishing those in our life and living a disciplined, focused life that's around wisdom. Because the promise, we, I was just having this conversation at dinner. We were talking, well, you know, how do people live long? Is it, you know, is it the way their, their diet or their this? It's like, no, actually it's wisdom. If you get wisdom, you get long life, you get wealth and you get happiness. It is the promise of wisdom. But so many of us, are throwing off wisdom. We don't want to be told what truth is. We don't want to be told what to do. But the result is we're not carefree. We're miserable. We're depressed. We're suicidal. We're aimless. We don't know what we're doing. And we go bounce, 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 bounce. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And it is it is torment. And so what I do a lot with my podcast, I am weaving together a tribe, a narrative, a way of thinking, which is, how can we, as a generation who is growing up in these multicultural, even in America, it's becoming much more multicultural. Who are we? What are we going to do? How are we going to get there? Are we going to make it? How do we go back to the plumb line of wisdom? How do we find that, that true, that North Star, that plumb line, and then align our lives around those principles? Because that is what is going to empower generation to whether it's make a change, make wealth, or just live a happy life, you know, that's how it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I 100% agree because you've got the, you've got one end of the spectrum that's, you know, EDM and glitter and drugs and, and, you know, frolicking around a field at Coachella or whatever. And then you've got your other end, um, which I probably more relate to. And so I have to be careful of is, you know what? Screw that. I'm not going to college. I'm not doing this. I'm just going to grind as hard as I can and I'll make wealth and eventually buy happiness. And either, mm-hmm. either end of that it isn't safe. And so absolutely, I think wisdom is 100% what we lack because we, we see wisdom and that equals rules and the way it's been put in front of us from our grandparents yeah. and our parents is, you know, totally. law and all that. And, and we don't like that. But hundred percent true if, if you don't yeah. have boundaries. Well, I'm sure you've heard of this because you have the kids, but 
that you have the kids, you have children. Um, yeah. But in a playground, if you have, if you have a fence around a playground, if there's an, a, a physical boundary, the kids will play all the way throughout the playground. But if you have just an open playground in the middle of say some type of field or big parking lot area, the kids will tend to migrate towards the middle because as children, which is true, mm. I think, I think adults are just, you know, we're just grown up children, really. We all function the same, but we're just trying to run around this middle of this playground, pretending that we're free when really we're so scared of the boundaries that we're just going to all flock together. And then we'll Absolutely. figure out our experiences and, and then that will become our theology of how we live our life and our, right. our psychology. So, so anyway, I'm just going on a tangent, but no, that's, I like that you brought that up. I mean, that's how we, we raise our kids. It's our kids are like, our kids are seeking and desperate for boundaries. They, they are looking to know what is a yes and what is a no. And when we, with our first kid, we didn't know what we were going to do with parenting. We didn't like, oh, you know, you shouldn't spank. We'll put them in timeout. And then you read like article from Harvard, timeout is the same as child abuse. Don't put your kid in timeout. You're like, well, then what the am I supposed to do with my child? Right, right. And finally, we read some books. We t- talked to some people. Uh, Don't make me count to three. Excellent book. If you are a parent listening to this and you are living in chaos, do yourself a favor for the love of your children. <laughs> Yet, don't make me count to three and apply it. And so we, my wife began, especially because she's the one that does all the hard work. I'm just, I, <laughs> I just take credit for it. Your kids are so great. I'm like, oh, thank you. I'm like, well, it's my wife. She does all the work. Um, and begin to apply it. But what, what it's saying is that kids want boundaries. And so you shouldn't give them threats. If you do that again, I'm going to hit you. If you do this, I'm going to spank you. If you're going to you need a timeout, I'm going to take this away. No, 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 no. It's like we go on with empty threats to try to control our kids when really we have to follow through the first time. And when we say, Johnny, don't do that. My kid's not Johnny, but Johnny, don't do that. Oh, you did that. Okay, now there are consequences for those actions. Why? Because they need to learn in 20, 30 years when they are leaders, if they break rules, there are going to be way worse consequences than just getting disciplined in a bathroom, right? There's way worse consequences. Like what happens if you cross the street or you're driving without your seatbelt on? There are way worse consequences. And so by giving your child boundaries, and we found with our first and all of our other ones, our child was so unhappy. He was so miserable throwing fits. But the moment that we began to actually discipline, heaven forbid I say discipline in America, but when we begin <laughs> to discipline, you know, all the, all the lurkers are coming out, haters are coming out, you know, whatever. When we began to discipline, all of a sudden, his demeanor changed and he was like the happiest kid alive. And we notice when our kids are starting to go on that decline and their moods are becoming grumpy. What I often do, I reflect back and say, have I been a lazy parent? Because the reason I do not discipline is not because I'm so kind and merciful and loving. No way. I'm, <laughs> I am lazy. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to move away from the conversation and go and spend 20 or 30 minutes disciplining my child. I do not discipline because I am lazy. And that is, it's like it all falls back on us. We have to take responsibility for the things that we have been given responsibility over. So with our kids, when I found out, I'm like, okay, 
I'm being lazy right now. Babe, we're being lazy right now. We cut the laziness out and we begin to get back on top of what we should be doing. All of a sudden, our kids miraculously overnight become angels. On a day-to-day basis, how do you, with four children and a three-week-old baby, how do you live a disciplined lifestyle so that you can mirror that for your kids? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I do it well. Um, how do I live a disciplined lifestyle? You know, for a while, I, I used to do a lot of kind of time management stuff. Right now, I am not doing that as much as I probably should do that. I'm not currently in like a really focused, um, structured. I'm just every day pressing as hard as I can. But I think within that, I live a disciplined lifestyle because I cut out distractions. We don't, we do not own a television. I love that. We have our computer. It's like nowadays it's, you know, there's Netflix, but we watch one movie a week, maybe two. So on the weekends we'll watch a movie like on, well, here it's our Thursday and Friday night. Our weekend's different. So our Friday, Saturday night, we'll watch a movie each one of those nights and spend some time together. Outside of that, I'm, I don't have a TV on. I'm not, I'm not watching that. I'm not playing games. I'm not, I'm living a focused life around my goals now and around my vision and where I'm going. And every day, every day I wake up and I'm thinking about that. My whole life is geared around my goals, my vision. Where am I going? What do I need to do today to move the ball a little further down the line? What do I need to do so that I'm set up for the next, you know, for what needs to happen in 10 months from now? So, and living focused by cutting out all the all the extras that I, I don't need to be focusing on. Right. Or that, you, that isn't leading or to our goals. Right. And you had mentioned um, when we were going back and forth in email, you set 300 goals a year. Is that right? No, no. I, 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 I wish I set 300 goals a year. That'd be kind of cool. Uh, so stati- not statistically, scientifically, if you set a lot of goals, you're going to accomplish none of them. Really, you should have like one, maybe two big goals that you're working towards and then small milestones okay. throughout it with celebrations every two weeks. I was saying in, in that, that I, I think like, I think the question that you asked was, what are your long-term goals? And so I think of what is going to, what is the world, what are my children going to be like 300 years from now? So I think in a 300 year vision. So what my long-term vision and goals is not, okay, what's my 30 year vision? Sure, I have that. But I'm really thinking, what, how am I building so that there is a, a pillar that remains 300 years from now? How am I, how am I, going as fast as I can today so that I'm, I'm able to run a 300-year marathon, not a 30-year marathon. And so everything that I, I, I hope everything that I do, I'm sure if I audited my life, I'd find out there's probably lots of margin and a lot of fat that can be cut out. But the way that I think on a day-in, day-out basis is not what can I achieve in the next 5, 10, 15, 30, 50 years, but I'm thinking how can I make an impact that then has cascading effects 300 years from now? And that is what I'm doing. I'm saying, how can I do something today? You know, those, it's as Gary Vaynerchuk would say, 
micro speed, macro patience, or another way is saying urgency and legacy. There's an, there's a daily urgency that I wake up and I have to, I have to run, 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 do, do, do. I have to execute and maximize every moment of my day to the best of my ability. That includes rest. That includes sleep. The first thing that us millennials want to do, us young guys, we want to cut out sleep. I'm going to sleep five hours, no, three hours, and two hours a night. You know what it feels like to be up for 48 hours straight? How does it feel? Horrible. Horrible. How's your motor skills? I'm basically drunk. Yeah, you're drunk. <laughs> and so the difference between someone who's been up for 48 hours straight and someone that has been sleep deprived for two weeks, so two weeks on six or less hours of sleep, the only difference is the person that has been getting six hours of sleep a night or less thinks that they're running at optimal condition, but really they are running the same as someone that has been up for 48 hours straight. Sleep is a massive, it's a huge part of, that was part of my narrative is when I was in university, I would try everything to hack my sleep. I'd wake up at like two in the morning so I could like get work done from two to six. I would try to go on like a, a 40 hour sleep schedule. So I'd be up for 24 to 36 hours and then I'd sleep for 18, 20 hours. And like every week I was getting sick and crashing because I was, I was fighting thinking that there's this narrative. There's this, well, if I want to be successful, then I must be busy. And if I'm busy, that means I'm not sleeping because successful people don't sleep when really that is a load of garbage. So when I talk about living a focused life and maximizing every minute of the day, it's saying you better like, you better be getting eight and a half hours of sleep. You better be getting, and there's many days that I'm like, my mind gets foggy. I'm like, I'm going to take a 20 minute nap because I know that if I take a 20 minute nap, I'm going to wake up with a clear mind. I say like, I'm, you know what? I could press on and try to get another hour's work done from 11 to midnight, but no, I'm going to go to bed because I know that that same hour tomorrow will be so much more productive if I get an eight hours sleep. So, I don't think that's living a balanced life. I think that's living in intention and in fullness, realizing in order for us to maximize our life, we have to be intentional to rest, to exercise, and to sleep. Yeah. Yes, it's so important. And when you were, to get back to what you were saying about, um, not to say that, I, I love that you enforced rest in the middle of that because I, I do think a lot of people put that at the very last and, and it makes sense why people crash. But to, I wanted to touch on a little bit more when you said that you were setting goals for 300 years. I think that's a foreign concept for most young people. Oh yeah. How, what are you they doing? They think three months is a big time. I talk to people like, yeah, I was like, hey, are you looking for a job? Well, I'm, I'm really, really tied up, really committed. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got this thing going on for the next three months. I'm like, oh, wow. Hey, like, good luck. Three months. <laughs> good, good for you. You're like, I've been changing <laughs> diapers for six years. So yeah. I have no yeah. idea what that's like. Well, Sorry, can you repeat your question? So the question is, when you're talking about having a 300 year goal that outlives you building something that outlives you that your grandkids will someday inherit or, or experience. How do you on a day-to-day -day basis practically move towards that? And, and like you said before, people without vision perish, but it also, you know, write down the vision and make it plain. So how do you make that plain when you're not going to be around in 300 years and, and you don't know what, what life is going to look like? I want to hear like practical things that you're doing now to, to build that legacy. 
Yeah, I I love that question. I think it goes back to it goes back to a couple of things. So there's kind of three pillars that I talk around that I think around. And one, it's story. I love the power of story, our personal story, our personal narrative, understanding who we are. Uh, my podcast, Own the Future, also within the segment Weaver and Loom, it's all about own your story and you'll own the future, right? Do you know who you are? Do you know your purpose? Do you know your destiny? Do you know which you were born on this earth to do. Then I like to talk about culture, and we've been talking a lot about culture, branding, kind of what is the pond that you're swimming in. And then I talk about change making. How do you then affect change? And so every brand, whether selling sneakers, any you know, school supplies, whether they're an educational system, we're all trying to affect change. Even if it's, hey, buy my notebook. We're trying to, we're trying to convince people to make a decision for change and probably every person that you talk to that has some sort of company believes they're making a change for the better in the world. So there's those three things that I talk and I think around. And so then the way that change happens, it's through micro decisions compounding over times, over time to make macro shifts. So, so that is how I think. I'm like, okay, if I can affect a few people in small ways and make small tweaks every day around my tribe, I know that in time that will create a cascading effect that will multiply over centuries. And so it's kind of like compounding interest. Whereas, you know, if you're putting a, you know, would you rather have a thousand dollars a day for 30 days or one penny today, two pennies tomorrow, four pennies the next day, you know, multiplying. Um, that's how I think of it. How can I affect, how can I touch 50 people in my lifetime? How can I touch maybe a hundred people in my lifetime in a significant way that makes a, a real change of thought of mindset. And then those 50 people actually create another, a new subculture that then will begin to self-multiply like yeast and bread. And then that affects change over centuries. And so, I mean, you can see it with what the gay agenda has done um, to over seemingly overnight when really that was something that was masterminded back in like the 1940s, I believe in France through the education system. I forgot the guy's name, but they laid out a plan and a system and they systematically implemented that over 80 years and then all of a sudden it's like boom there's this shift there's this change well how did it happen well it happened you know 80 years ago there's a plan that was set into motion to put liberal ideologies but socialistic ideologies to you know the hammer and the sickle to push and pull back push and pull back um to to undermine gender to undermine uh, social norms and what's the role of a father? What's the role of a mother? And it's and it's not just all unto, you know, the gay agenda or now you know this trans inclusion movement. It's not all unto that. What it really is unto is the is the undermining of the family unit. Why? Because if there's no family unit and there's no structure, then there's no support for the family, and the family cannot be self-sustaining as it should be, but it must rely on the government. And if it relies on the government, then the government has power. So it's it's not just like it is a play unto massive power grabs, not just in America, but globally. So so there are 
you know, these things, they don't happen by accident. They're actually mastermind and people give their lives in billions of dollars and their, you know, generations to seeing this come up to, to effect, to set things into motions, to tell a narrative that people resonate with so that people will stand up and ask questions, seek out truth, seek out principles, and then live by them and then teach them to their families, to their children, to their tribes, to their, their peer groups, which then shifts culture. So when I think about 300 years from now, I'm not thinking about, you know, will I have a building with my name still on it 300 years from now? But that would be really cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm really thinking about how can, how can macro cultures shift through the little things that we do through the essentially branding. I love that. How can that, how can we affect that? And I think we, we have the power to, we have the power to. Absolutely. I mean, most of, you even think of, you know, this is now kind of going into a long rant. You yeah. think of um, most of what America was founded on was written by John Milton. John Milton wrote most of the founding thoughts of the American constitution. And he was, you know, hundreds of years before America was actually founded, but it was his writing on censorship. It was his writing that really shaped the way that we view America and the constitution was framed around that. You look at the, I believe it's the, uh, the current bill of rights that's been accepted that is used by the UN that was actually written by King Cyrus, who Daniel sat under. So Daniel, prophet Daniel is mentoring Cyrus. He then writes this document that now is being used today. So, you, I mean, you want to talk about shaping, you want to talk about shaping history. It's, we actually, we actually have the ability to, and sometimes we abdicate our responsibility and we regulate it to, well, that's the king up there. It's this person here. But you, story after story, Rosa Parks, Mm-hmm. She stood. She she sat down. Actually, she didn't stand up. Saying, I'm not going to stand up. Right? There's so many people who could. They it could have been someone else. It could have been Betty Sue, but Betty Sue went to the back of the bus. Mm-hmm. So I think each and every one of us are powerful agents of change in our world and in the world around us, and that impacting one person really has a much greater effect than we give credence to. So that's how I think of a 300-year vision. And so I realize that every day it, it takes time to, to build that out. It's not an overnight thing. It's brick by brick. Yeah. And what would you say is holding us back? I mean, the people listening or just in general cultures, what is holding us back from making change? Uh, um, it probably depends on what change we're talking about making. I think a lot of it's fear, probably a lot of it's small minded thinking. A lot of it is abdicating a responsibility. I think it's someone else's, it's someone else's so often both in the States and in here, I hear it's, well, the government's not doing this. Well, the government, you know, needs to, I mean, right now, some of the things in America, it's just kind of like, what on earth? Like the government needs to pay our student loans. I'm like, why? Yeah. They're your they're your student loans. Like and if the government's paying this means everyone else in society is paying taxes and sometime that bill is going to come around. So what I see is so many people are abdicating their responsibility. Even 
Um, yeah. So with that, I think part of it, it's fear. Part of it is small minded thinking. Part of it is not thinking big enough, long enough. Um, just living in a culture where it's just, we're going to keep in and stay in our close little safe bubble and it's someone else's job out there. And I'm just going to live my life and scroll through Instagram. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to share this episode and come follow me at Brooke A. Payne. That's Brooke with an E, A-P-A-Y-N-E on Instagram and Facebook. And all of our resources are in my bio. Thank you guys so much. It means so much to me that you're listening.